Okay, so the topic for tonight is how is halakha decided? That is obviously an absurdly ambitious title um, for almost any lecture. And Kalvachomer, it's an absurdly if, if for, um, for a one hour lecture. So we're gonna state up front that there isn't gonna be a way to cover all of it in an hour. Uh, so I wanna, I wanna state on the outset of what it is I'm trying to do. Uh, this is probably gonna be a little bit more diffuse than um, most of the other shirim I've given. Uh, so there may not be as obvious times to stop and ask questions. So if there aren't and you have questions, um, feel, feel free to ask. Uh, what I want to do in this year is, on the one hand, to present um, rules that are called kolei hora'a. Right? Kolei hora'a are the rules by which halakha is decided. And um, you should be aware um, right, that, also that there are rules, and then there are also difficulties seeing them as absolute rules as opposed to more like, um, more like guidelines. Uh, one could happily spend a semester or a year just going through all the rules that there are. There are books about the Kolei Hora'a used in other books, right? Ravad Yosef has a whole list of the Kolei Hora'a and the Shulchan Aruch. The Ad Malachi has a long list of the rules used in different kind, by, by different kinds of poskim. But we're going to try and, as much as I can, um, present what I think are examples that everyone thinks are relevant to some extent and examples that are capable of being generalized. Okay, second issue I want to talk about is that tomorrow night we're going to talk about who decides halakha. So as much as possible, I'm going to try to separate the, the how from the who. Uh, so I'll try and keep myself out of it, and I'll try and uh, keep comments about how specific contemporary postgame address um, out of it. At the same rate, what I have to say is I'm going to try to be descriptive as opposed to prescriptive, and I'm going to try to, to describe consensus as opposed to idiosyncrasy. At the same time, there's no way that, you know, I do have opinions, and there's no way to avoid prescriptive elements. There's no way to um, avoid that parts of the shir are going to be, instead of how is halakha decided, are inevitably going to be how um, Arya Clapper thinks halakha ought to be decided. Okay. There's also a question of legal philosophy I want to address at the outset, which is to talk about the question of when halakha is decided or um, to what extent um, halakha is still being decided. That's a, there's a general issue in legal philosophy. Some people say that when a case is presented, you have a whole body of law that actually already exists. And the job of a judge is to figure out how the law that already exists extends to this case. And in most cases, it just, right, you know, really the, the case has already been decided. Um, then there's another vision, which is that the law never exists in any real sense until it's applied in a specific case. So every, the law is really being made up. It's being decided continually. Every single decision is a case. So you have to figure out which way you, which way you think halakha functions, the halakha function in the idea that there is a giant body of halakha and all you're doing is trying to figure out, uh, right, make minor decisions mostly within the framework of an existing legal system or do you think that every decision is really, the halakha gets made, gets made up as a whole every time you make a, uh, every time you make a decision. Um, okay, another issue that needs to, although uh, even there, obviously there, there are harder and easier decisions. Another issue that has to come up is at what point are you actually deciding halakha? This is a variant of that question. Um, so uh, I think Roshechter is fond of saying that most questions that are asked to rabbis today don't actually require what is technically known as hora'ah. They don't actually require halakhic decision-making. What they require is a maramakum, right? Somebody, right, you just point the person to a book and say, look, you'll find the answer there in that book. So that works on the idea that in, that in the vast majority of these cases, the law has already been decided in the past. And so when you ask a question, you're really not asking a person to make a decision. You're asking them to refer you to the place where the decision has already been made. Um, 
Okay. Um, right, we can also make a distinction between, even if you say that this is a case that hasn't been exactly decided before, we could distinguish between what I would call mechanical decision-making, which is to say there are rules and the way to, and this decision can be reached simply by following the rules. For example, let's suppose that you believe there is a rule, which is the first rule we'll talk about, that the halakha follows Beit Hill against Beit Shammai. So even if it's a new question, I can just look and say, oh, look, right, you know, here's a Beit Shammai, here's Beit Hill. We follow Beit Hill. That doesn't require a decision. Right? Right? All that does is follow me, to, is, is require me to know the rule. And right? so you have, you have cases that, um, that's, you have some cases that don't even stretch the past. All you're doing is saying, look, this looks, this is exactly the case that was decided before. There are cases which don't require decisions except in terms of which rule to apply and which rule to apply may be obvious. And all those things can happen without halakha being decided in any way at all. So here we have to decide, are we talking about the way in which the halakha that is given to us is decided? Or are we talking about the way that we decide halakha? So most of this year is going to talk about the way the halakha has been built up over the past, and less so on the question of how we decide halakha, uh, how we decide halakha now. Um, okay, now part of the issue is that although it sounds very nice to say, oh, there are halakhot that require just a reference, and there are halakhot that require actual decisions, the lines aren't, there, there aren't really bright lines. And one of the things that really breaks up the bright line is that often the hardest part of reaching a proper halakhic conclusion is not the halakha at all, it's the reality. Right, if I, right, um, let's say, for example, right, to make a contemporary case, we talk about other contexts. So if you want to decide uh, right, what the rules should be about mikvaot, so funda right, fundamentally, you're making a pragmatic judgment about how well mikvaot are following the CDC rules. That's a pragmatic judgment. If you want to make judge judgments about how broad the leniency should be for setting up, uh, setting up video links to your Seder, you have to, have, you have to evaluate how well, right, what the risks to mental health are of not doing so. In addition to the questions of what the halakhic violations are, and how likely it is how likely it is that somebody that somebody will actually set up a, a Zoom thing and not have to fiddle with it because in the vast majority of cases people have to uh, people have to fiddle right all those sorts of um, issues. So what I want to teach first of all is a um, is what I like to tell my students usually is the most dangerous um, the most dangerous gemara and shas uh, because it really points up the challenge of trying to figure out what exactly a halachic decision is. So the context of it does not matter to us right now. We're just going to, because while the context, uh, there's a controversy in the context, and this text is quoted as one side of the context, the text itself, so far as I can tell, is non-controversial. And here's the text. The text says, a that was taught in the Beit Midrash, which Beit Midrash is not identified. The, the person speaking is a figure named Ziri, uh, which is a okay, right. It's first generation Amora, I think, second, whatever it may be. Um, so he says, if a Beitin ruled that the sun had set, okay, it's Shabbat, and the and people are wondering, can we go outside? You know, can we can we engage in our most Shabbat activities? And the Beitin rules the Shabbat had set, and then guess what? It turns out they were wrong. It was just cloudy. In the end, the sun shone. So the Gemara says, this is not a Hora'ab, but rather a Ta'ut. This is not a halachic, right? It's not that they made a halachic decision and therefore everybody followed a halachic decision which turned out to be an error. This was not a halachic decision at all. This was just a mistake. And the consequence of that is that people are responsible for their own sacrifices if they violated Shabbat. They can't say I was relying on the Beit Din because the Beit Din didn't do anything 
the Beit Din made a meteorological claim, right, or, an, or, an, right, or an astronomical claim. They said that the sun had gone, had gone X degrees below, the, right, below whatever the angle is it's supposed to be at, and they were wrong. So the right, so the um, the Gemari, the, the Brayta here seems to claim that um, in the realm of the realm of facts is utterly independent from the realm of halachic decision making, and an error in the realm of facts is just that. Well, really, all halacha does is decide the law on a given set of facts. And the problem is that you know that this obviously can't work in you know easy cases, like what happens if um, you know if in a criminal case, uh, you know you, you know, you're trying somebody for murder and they claim that the person they killed was not actually a human being, but was a positronic robot, whatever it may be. And so, you, and he says, well, why, is your, why is your position about the facts privileged, right? Courts have no authority over the facts. Obviously, courts have to have authority over the facts. Uh, whenever you ask a halakhic question, um, the answer is going to depend to some degree on an evaluation of the facts. And if you give someone else authority, as opposed to yourself, to a certain extent, you have to give them authority over the facts as well. So I just put that as, as an upfront thing that when we talk about theoretical structures about how halakha is decided, so the theoretical structures are all going to be internal to deciding the law, but if we were actually talking about what happens when halakha is decided, what happens when halakha is decided is always going to be an evaluation of both the law and the facts. So that's a, right, so you can't do a full description of the, um, of how halakha is decided without talking about what sort of relationship people have to facts, what sort of fact gathering mechanism uh, they have. And that's a really big deal and figuring out why, you know, how that's part of law is a really big issue. Another example that um, so the rules of evidence in, uh, in Baitian systems uh, used to be very informal and, you know, and, and Dayanim could basically use their own evaluation of witnesses. And at some point as the secular courts got much more, uh, fr- you know, much more, um, procedurally strict. So then people started looking and saying, how can Beitin function the way it always has, right? There are factual errors being made. And so, but they didn't now generally have to function with much stricter rules of evidence than they, than they used to because the determinate, with determined facts, we were deep influence from the external structure on the Beitin system. Okay, that's, um, that's, that's uh, one, one, one kind of limit. Then there are other kinds of ways in which we saw uh, we saw in, uh, in the uh, in other shirim this week that it complicates right, what it means to decide halakha. First of all, to decide halakha in the abstraction, but it may be the halakha is different in an ordinary case and in a shatat right? Talking about what the halakha is on any other issue really may create a, you know, create a sliding scale. This is the halakha if there is no inconvenience at all. This is the halakha, the halakha if there's minor inconvenience. This is the halakha if there is either either subjectively great financial loss or objectively serious uh, financial consequences. This is the halakha. If there are consequences for the whole community, um, right? Maybe a single aguna is equivalent to the right to a grave financial loss for the entire community. Right? We saw one chuva like that in the Chalkad Yaakov. Maybe you know there are issues where which are different when they affect the entire community. So it's not clear the halakha is decided uh, absolutely in the way that you would imagine a legal system being a legal system being decided. That's another issue. And then to say the way in which halakha is decided treats halakha as if it were a single system, but aside from the subjective reality that different people decide halakha in different ways, different communities decide halakha in different ways. Like say, for example, uh, generally when there's a machloket between Rav Yosef Karo and the Ramah, and Rav Moshe Israelis, right, between, between the two components of what we call the Shulchan Aruch. So generally communities that identify on the 
Sephardic side of a binary of a, of a binary world will paskin like the Mechaber and communities that identify with the Ashkenazi side of, of an imaginary binary world will will rule like the Ramah. So the rules of decision making are different. Now that's a very stark case, but uh, another instance, for example, is that in uh, contemporary Sephardic halacha, probably uh, there's a mechanism called sfeks that the that is called sfeks sveka halachically, which is when you say there's a doubt and then there's another doubt, and so usually we say that um, in a sfeka, in a sfeks sveka situation you can uh, permit even things that right, when the need is, when the need is great certainly you can permit even things that are biblically forbidden, um, and that's something that. Uh, Rav Avad Yosef uses a lot, and that seems to, you know, that at least has become known as a Sephardic mechanism, whereas some Ashkenazim, not all, will feel themselves bound by a whole set of formal rules about the application of, of Sveik Sveika. So when you, right, you can read, you, when you read an Ashkenazi, a Sephardic Shuvah, it'll usually just say Sveik Sveika and we go home, and Ashkenazi Shuvah might have six more pages explaining why this Sveik Sveika fits into the various rules about Sveik Sveika set up by the Shach. Um, and some people are very self, uh, very self-conscious about that. Uh, I recall uh, Rav Bar Chaim with Rosh Hashiva at YU uh, coming into the base medrash, made an impression on me, and seeing us learning. I think it was the Ksos, right? It was a very, you know, classic Lumdish Ashkenazi uh, achron, and yelling at us like, you know, this will just confuse your minds, right? If you learn this kind of material, that's not really the way to do halacha. So we should be aware that there are subdivisions by, um, right, by communal identification, and then there are subdivisions by identification with particular poskim, and even within a single yeshiva, you can have people who have, you know, you know broad agreement on other issues, but when it comes to halacha, they'll follow very different rules and very different kinds of personalities. Um, I think that, you know, for, the, for many of us, the model of that is for Lichlensin of Rav Amital, or Lichlensin of Amital with the Rosh Yeshiva Yeshiva Haritzion, and, you know, they were an amazing team ideologically, they were personally very different, and their, you know, and their personalities expressed themselves profoundly in what they found attractive in ways of psaq, uh, right? Where they, you know, they, they ruled in very different ways with very different instincts. So even if you talk about the method of psaq in Yeshiva Haritzion, it really depends um, which Rosh Yeshiva you were more, uh, you were more influenced by. Uh, I can say that um, in the years since I left uh, Yeshiva University or Ritz, the nature of, deci- of halachi decision-making um, taught in the institution and um, and promulgated by its graduates, to my mind, has shifted in really radical ways methodologically, not so much substantively, but methodologically. There have been radical shifts where it used to be a much, much more conceptual approach was instinctive, and now it's a much less, it's a much more pragmatic, um, pragmatic uh, common, sense, common sense approach is my take. Uh, there are certainly people in the institution who would disagree with my perception of a shift and my perception of the current a situation or of the past. Okay, right. Those are all the those are all the disclaimers that we need to have. What I want to um, go back to now is to challenge the entire premise of the shear, which is we say how is halacha decided? Why is it necessary to decide halacha? Right? Why can't we just say that everybody should make their own decision or at least say, if we're not going to say everybody should make their own decision, we should say that there is some kind of threshold at which, if you, right, at which point, if you, um, if you reach that threshold, you can make your own decision. Or we could say maybe it's not personally located, but, it, um, right, but that at any given time, 
we're perfectly happy if um, if many different types of halakha, right? If any, any argument that reaches a threshold of plausibility, we're perfectly happy to have that be the halakha, right? So why is it necessary ever to make a decision? And really, if you want to say, okay, there's certain kind of there, there's some kinds of circumstances where a decision is necessary, um, you know, in the same way that uh, generally, like if you want to run a choir, so you know, so with apologies to Dumbledore, everybody pretty much has to sing the same song, or you're not going to get a choir. So there are times when uniformity is necessary, and so a decision is arbitrary. But there are lots of cases where uniformity is not necessarily necessary. So why should we, um, right, so, right, you know, no particular reason everybody has to have their partiot and fill in, in, the, um, in, the, in the same order. Uh, there's no particular reason we couldn't have totally different standards of kashrut and just a rule that you're always allowed to trust anybody else whenever you come to their house. So who really cares, right? We don't have to make, we don't have to make our decisions as to whether swordfish is kosher, um, right, or whether, whether you can kosher Pyrex or anything like that. Just like, right, you can have lots of different halakhic systems, then we can figure out how people, uh, how people behave on the interstices. So I want to raise that question, first of all. Why is a decision necessary? And then secondly, I want to, as part of that, I want to read a text with you. It's a fairly famous text, um, and it appears to present a basis for how halakha is decided. We have to figure out if that decision has any resonance at all. So here's our text. The text says, said Rabbi Abba Sitchmuel, for three years, Bithil and Bithshamai disputed, these said the law follows us, and these said the law follows us. And the heavenly voice emerged and said, or abakko, whatever you, you know, however you want to translate that, uh, these and those are the living words of God, right? Um, you can say Elohim, you can say Elohim, Chaim, and you can translate it as living words of God, or the words of the living God, whichever way, right? whichever, whichever way you uh, write, or powerful words of God, whatever you want. Um, but right, these and these are both, uh, are both have some form of aspect of divinity and truth to them, right? Both Beit and Beit but the law follows Beit Hillel. Right, so that's a fascinating claim, right? It's prima facie raises the issue, right? If these and those are, are the living words of God, so we, right, so why do you need to make a decision? Why not live with the, why not live with the pluralism? I know this was often my job at uh, pluralistic settings um, back when I was a young um, gadfly. So, you know, so often at pluralistic settings, somebody would get up at some point and say, you know, dealing with, it, with the various denominations, things like that. Why can't we all just say, but we get but these and those living words of God and go home, right? And that would always be the, the climax of the 15 minute you know, preoration would be, we should just say, and then my job would be to get up to that and say, doesn't work. You actually need to make a decision about halacha. But the counter challenge is why? Right? Why should it be necessary to make a decision at all? So, uh, this Gemara doesn't actually address that question. This Gemara addresses the question on the assumption that we had to make a decision. How do we make the decision? So the answer is, but right, so but since these and those are living words of God, why did Hill merit having the law established as following them? Because they were pleasant and forbearing and taught their own words, the words of Bichamai. Not only that, they put the words of Bichamai before their own. Okay, so that would be very nice if we were to say, how is Halakha decided? Halakha has decided um, on the basis of who is nicer and more intellectually honest. <laughs> Whoever's nicer and more intellectually and more intellectually honest wins. Um, but you know, part of the issue here is that in this case, at least, it seems that the um, it seems that the halakha is not decided by human beings. The halakha is decided by God. So God can make decisions on the basis of kindness 
and intellectual honesty, but uh, practically, maybe human beings aren't such good judges of that. Maybe we each think that we're more that way. And so you have to figure out who the outsider is, who decides which of us is more. And uh, secondly, that's not the way human beings make decisions. Um, it's very unlikely to make it right. Then we just get into, into vicious competitions about who could be nicer, right? Um, and the world doesn't always work like Miracle on uh, 34th Street or whatever it is. Um, okay. So this is a, a moral, you know, post facto description of how decisions are made. It doesn't really tell you how decisions are made. And in fact, it gives you, you know, only one pragmatic rule for how the decisions are made. And that pragmatic rule is that when a heavenly voice comes down and tells you that Talacha follows Beit Hill, Talacha follows Beit Hill. Okay, Tosot asked the question that I'm sure all of you already had in mind, which is that, like, you know, the one Gemara that everybody knows is the, is the Gemara about the Oven of Achnai. And, you know, and everybody has that, you know, loves that moment, the end of the Oven of Achnai, when Eliezer has brought all his proofs from them, you know, from magical springs and and uh, and the walls of the Midrash have almost fallen down in palm trees. Everybody you know, is looking at him and saying, well, who really cares what palm trees say? And at the end, right, Rabbi Lezer brings down a heavenly voice that says, what, you know, what's, what are you guys doing? Don't you know the halakha always follows Rabbi Lezer? And Yeshua gets up on his legs and says, lo bashamayinhi, right? Quotes the varim, and he interprets that to mean, the Torah is not in heaven. And right, we all cheer that, right? The Torah is not in heaven, yay, yay. Uh, right, we, right, we don't pay attention to the batkols. So it's really odd. So on the one hand, right, the most famous Gemara we have nowadays is that you don't follow batkols, but the most famous decision principle we have in Halakha, the most famous case we have, says that we have to follow a batkol. So how does one deal with, right, with that? Right? So this is a fundamental question. Are decisions made by God or are decisions made by human beings? And we have a, you know, a blatant contradiction on that subject. Uh, so Tosfus tries the following answers. Tosfus says, the first answer he has is, uh, is a, a glorious answer. He says that the Batkol supporting Rebbe Yezer did so only to uphold his dignity. Right? That in, the, in the argument of Rebbe Yezer and Rebbe Yeshua, the Batkol said that the Halakha follows Rebbe Yezer, but didn't mean it. But it, meant, right, it, just, it just was trying to make Rebbe Yezer feel better. But the problem, of course, is that given that argument, so that's what Bechamai would say to Behillel, Right, God just wants you to feel better. So, if you allow that kind of response, then a batkol never has authority because a batkol has no way of defending itself. You can always claim that God had ulterior motives for misrepresenting the halacha. Okay, then Tosfos has another approach. He says, in that case, the batkol, right, in the case of Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yeshua, the batkol opposed the majority, so we certainly don't follow it. But the batkol supporting Bethilla, we follow because Bethilla were the majority. So that seems like silly, because if the law follows the majority, which is how Rabbi Yirmi explains the position, lo who needs a batkol? And if the right, and if the, right, so what does a batkol add? Either majority rules a principle, or it's not a principle. So Tosis points out, right, and this is based on the Gemara we have, which is a uh, a really interesting claim. He says, you know what? Uh, may were smarter. So. Okay, again, what does a batkol settle? Either the smarter people win or the majority wins. Rabbi, right, Rabbi Yirmiya explained Rabbi Yeshua saying that the Torah claims, whether you know, that's shot or not, that the Torah claims follow the majority. So who really cares that Bishamay were sharper? Right, that's a really, right? So Tuzis doesn't really successfully explain at all what it is, right? Why it is that the case of Behil and Bishamay is exceptional. And the truth is, that the Gemara is not obvious that it's, except, that it's exceptional. Uh, the Gemara that Chedosah is commenting on, 
uh, records a dispute both between Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish and between Rav and, Rav and Rabbi Yochanan, that's why the Babli sets it up, as to whether, this is a fascinating claim, whether Beit Shammai's position ever existed in practice. Of each, in each of those pairs, Rav and, Rav and Shmuel, um, Rish Lakish, Rabbi Yochanan, one of them holds that Beit Shammai was a purely theoretical position. They, they knew from the very beginning that the law followed, that the law followed, uh, followed Beit Hillel. And they only came up with it, right? Whatever they argued with Beit Hillel, they knew in advance that they were losing. That's a really wild idea, right? That there's a, a whole school which exists only to be, you know, the closest analogy we have is like sort of the Washington Generals. Those of you know, the Washington Generals are the team that plays the Harlem Globetrotters. They're not supposed to win. They won once in 1972 or something like that. You know, it's an amazing thing where the Globetrotters blew it. But they're not supposed to win. So Beit Hillel are the Washington Generals of, uh, of Halakha. So that position is fascinating psychologically, uh, but wild, um, wild in, in real life. So the Gemara says, no, 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 maybe what it means is, eminent position is that, um, they, that even at, when, after the heavenly voice came down, Beit Shammai stopped acting according to their position, but they still, they weren't convinced they were false. Why should they be? Because the Gemara said, um, but from that point on, they knew at least that their past positions were not the halacha, even though they still thought they were true. That's a much more, um, that's a much more psychologically plausible position. The issue that interests us, though, is the Gemara's interest in the reverse case. So one, two of these four Amoraim held that Beit Shammai acted on their own position. So the Gemara says, when do they act on their own position? If, right, you could, say, you could say, if it's after the heavenly voice, so why don't they follow the heavenly voice? And even before the heavenly voice, why didn't they follow the majority? And if Beit Hillel were a majority, so what basis did Beit Shammai have for acting on their own positions? So the Gemara says that if the, right, if the discussion about whether Beit Shammai followed on their, their position relates only to before the Batkal, so let's try and figure out what were they arguing about? Why did each of them think the halacha should follow them? So they say, let's assume that Beit Shammai had a, Beit Hillel had a majority. And um, so one possibility is Beit Shammai agreed Beit Hillel had a majority. Okay, that's why they didn't act on their position. So they're very odd. You know, they, in that ground, they just kept hoping they would get a majority. But every time there was a vote, they lost. Um, and the position that Beit Shammai followed their own position, and here we get you know, a, a, what Tosis is basing himself on, believes that majority rule applies only when the two sides are intellectual equals. But Beit Shammai were sharper. Now, what does that really mean? What it really means is that Beit Shammai thought that lots of the, pe- mem- of the people who identify with Beit Hillel didn't get the vote. They thought there was a particular level of, uh, right, of learning you had to read and learning it not just knowledge, but, but intellectual capacity that you had to reach in order to be one of the people whose votes are counted when we decide who has a majority. And they thought that the, among the people who reached that level, that they had a majority. And Beit Hillel said, no, right? We think that the standard is lower. Or else Beit Hillel said, we think that your standards are absurd, right? In the way of, you know, Baruchayim looking at us and saying, you think you know Xos that makes you better. Actually, you think you know Xos that just makes you worse. Right, so that's right. So Behil and Shammai fundamentally, on this understanding, uh, before the heavenly voice came out, they had a disagreement about what it meant for majority rule to rule because they had different, they had different notions of who was on the voting register. And the other position is that you know that Beit Shammai followed their position even afterwards because Beit Shammai were consistent. 
and they um, the time were consistent, and they uh, with you know, and they just said we never follow a bot call. We didn't, you know, you didn't follow the bot call when it proved Rebbe Ezra's position. We're not going to follow the bot call uh, when right when it follows your position. And in that case, we don't really know why the you know even though we have this dramatic moment where a bot call comes out, actually. Beit Shammai thought that wasn't halacha, and you couldn't settle it that way. Maybe they thought that, you know, because maybe they thought the bakul just came out to make Beit Hillel feel better. Because after all, every, you know, maybe they agreed they still were nicer people, and God would say, and God would tell them the halacha followed them, not because it really followed them because they were nicer, but God would say that because he wants to make nice people feel better, uh, right? The way he wanted to make Rebbe Yezer, uh, make Rebbe Yezer feel better. So, um, so in that case, right, there really is no way, and we don't know, we don't know why the why the rule went against Beit Shammai. Okay, but now the Gemara, at the, after all this, the Gemara raises a possibility as to why it is we have to make a decision. Uh, the Gemara says, according to the position that Beit Hill and Beit Shammai each acted on their own positions, would this be considered a violation of Lotid Godidu? So, Lotid Godidu is um, understood in this context as a uh, because there are two dollars, so we treat it as a, you know, a pun that's a lot of fun nowadays. Say there should only be one aguda in the Jewish people. There can't be two agudas, even though if you look at current temporary signs, you know, they both signed they signed both agudat harabanim, and agudat Israel. So we have two agudos, at least in the um, in the American Jewish community. But Lotid Godu is a prohibition against the Jewish people forming into factions within Torah. So the reason we have to make a decision. Is because if we don't make a decision, the um, the Jewish people will be split. Or right, the language that the that the Gemara uses in at least one place is, the Torah itself will become two Torahs. And I want to argue, right? I'm not I'm not going to try and bring the evidence in this um, in this shear, but I, but I think that there are two fundamental understandings of what the problem is of Lotit go to do. Not on a technical level, it's actually very narrowed greatly by this Gemara, but on a theoretical level, there are two broad understandings. One understanding is says the focus is about two Torahs. And if you have, if the Jewish people get to a situation where each side's decisions build on the past decisions, right? So because I decided the halacha this way, they're going to decide the halacha that way, right? So we diverge on issue A. And now we have to build our consistent systems. So because we diverged on, on, on issue A, now we have to diverge on issues B. And, now, and we build, over time, we build, um, we build totally separate halachic systems. And at that point, right, we have no joint decision procedure. And the Torah has been split, and that's a fundamental violation of the purpose of Torah. So we have to make decisions to prevent the Torah from being split. Um, and I say, ironically, right, this, that this means that the worst thing to happen is pluralism. Because pluralism is what happens when people no longer fight about what the truth is. They just say your truth is right. And then they can go their own hermetically separate ways. That's the Ramam's position. That the Lotus Godu is intended to prevent the Jewish, uh, is intended to prevent the Jewish people from, um, from splitting. The um, Rashi's position is that it's a pragmatic issue. The way people work eventually, right, if people do different things, they're going to fight about which one is right. So you have to make a decision because people can't really handle pluralism. Um, now, you have to figure out what situation can people handle pluralism about or not. There is, uh, what I often talk about is the funniest line in all of rabbinic literature is um, the, the uh, Yosef Karo, the author of the, of the Mechaber, the Shulchan Aruch, um, in his Shuvot, called Abkat Rochel, 
So he has a question about whether you should allow uh, diasporans to, to keep two days Yontav in Israel and to daven there. And he says, what's the big deal? You'll tell me it's a violation of Lotit go to do because people are doing different things and they'll fight about what to do. Who would fight about shul? No one would ever fight about what to say in shul, right? right? But it's, you know, it's one of those lines that seems comic. Uh, did he never go to a shul where people thought you know, that on yesterday I taught all the truvot about the days when you know, the, the, the times when people fought in shul about who got the seventh aliyah and the whole, right? And they didn't get the lane for a week. Um, but he was a card who would fight? Who would fight about shul? Okay. So we have two basic grounds for making decisions, right? For, uh, for having, for allow, for the necessity of decisions. We require a decision in circumstances where the result of not making a decision will be that somehow two hermetically sealed uh, different Torahs will develop. So we have to come together for that. And we also might uh, require a decision be made because we think that in practice, uh, it will lead to communal discord if we allow the two decisions to, um, to exist. So the problem is though, that you don't actually have to make the most, this does not require to dissolve most issues. Most of these issues are resolvable if you just allow the right say that if people come to fight, we have to have a way of settling it. If it looks like the the systems are diverging, we have to have a way about reunifying them. So the right so we can avoid the necessity of making this decisions as long as everybody agrees how a decision would be made. And such a mechanism actually existed. The mechanism is called the Sanhedrin Agadola. And the Ramam has this marvelous scheme that you know for, that for you know for much of Jewish history there were no what he calls machlokot. There were no divisions in the Jewish people because every issue that caused a machloket was brought to the high court. So the Ram has this vision where every issue is settled. But I don't think that's true. I think that the easier way of conceiving of, in that system is the way the United States Supreme Court functions. The United States, right, the, what holds the United States together as a legal system is the, is the so far universal agreement that if there's a legal dispute, you can bring it to the Supreme Court and whatever the Supreme Court decides is the law. Now, the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, you know, takes very, very few cases a year. Right? So there are enormous numbers of legal issues in dispute in the United States all the time. Nobody thinks the existence of those disputes, even the existence of disputes among different appellate, federal, federal courts, appellate courts between different states, all of those sorts of things, make, right? they don't matter. What matters is our, our principal theoretical and practical acceptance of the authority of the Supreme Court. So we could have, right, say that, you know, most halachic issues don't have to be settled at all. It's just that when you, when you have these unfortunate consequences, we should bring it to the Supreme Court. Um, so the problem with the Ramam's vision, really the Mishnah's vision, is that there was a Sanhedrin in the time of Hill and Bechamai. Um, so now what we really understand is that um, the Gemara, which says that a Batkol came out for Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, is not telling us the normal decision procedure. Is that normally there, right? You didn't need any decision procedure other than the Sanhedrin Agadol voting, um, right? But there, this has to be a situation where the Sanhedrin Agadol broke down, right? And there's a right, and that will tell us something, right? So the, the mechanism discussed here, right, the Batkol, um, comes in because. Right, because the um, the mechanisms of halacha itself were not sufficient to resolve the dispute. But why not? Everyone has to accept the Sanhedrin Agadol's um, authority. So here's what the um, what the Ramban says. 
The Rabban says that there's a Brayta in Chulin, which says that people at a certain point, right, presumably, let's say before the Batkol, um, if people wanted to follow Beit Shammai, they could follow Beit Shammai consistently, as long as you follow the leniencies and stringencies, or you can follow Beit Hillel, their leniencies and stringencies. Right? Just, you just have to pick them, right? The Gemara says that if you follow both their Chumras, you're an idiot, and if you follow both their Kulas, you're, right, both their leniencies, you're, a, right, you're um, evil, but, right? Okay. But you can follow either side consistently. So Ramaz, I don't understand this, right? We have we have and The Kolehora say that um, generally we rule, we follow the person who is greater in wisdom and number. So you'll tell me, ah, but Hill and Bichama, we can't decide who's greater in wisdom and number. So then we have other mechanical rules. Mechanical rules are in Torah law, follow the more stringent, and in rabbinic matters, follow the lenient. Okay, and as we also say, we could follow majorities. So Ramban says, I don't understand this idea of following Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel consistently. That seems to be against all the principles of halachic decision-making. So his answer is, I can respond that because the dispute between the students of the house of Shammai and the, and the house of Hillel was large, so that all the, the sages of Israel were subsumed within it, and the Torah became for them as two Torahs, Everybody has the right to follow either, as we say in Ivama. So this is a really interesting line, right? And Ramban says that at some point, everybody was a member of either Beit Hillel or, um, or Beit Shammai. But that's a terrible thing, right? The Torah became two Torahs. So we said the whole reason to make decisions is to avoid the Torah becoming two Torahs. And now Ramban is saying that the reason that the Gemara says you can follow either position because the Torah is already two Torahs? Right? We, that's exactly why we should require it, require you uh, to make a decision as opposed to allow this kind of pluralism. So Rabbi Nisim, I think, the, the Ran, in quoting the Ramban, explains it a little bit, um, a little bit further. He says, since, um, right, that this statement um, right, uh, only applies to a person who is not among the disputants. All the, and here's what I'm going to make. This is the biggest plan I'm going to make in the shir. All the decisions, all the rules of Horah, apply to somebody who is not part of the fight. If I don't have a dog in the race, right? All that comes up to me is I, I am a neutral party. All I know is that X holds this position, X holds Y this position, and I have no basis for in reaching my own conclusion on the issue, whether it's because of humility or because in fact my own intellectual limitations, or because actually I've heard both their positions and I can't tell you which one is true. So that, the, the Mennonism says, that's the only time that we follow rules. But when two equivalent sages disagree, right? but when two, two people who have a right to their own opinion, they disagree, each has the right to act in accordance with his own position, whether it be strict or lenient. Okay, so right, so I, I, if I disagree with you, so then I just do what I want. Right? I have to figure out, right, he seems to think that's only for equivalent, right? Maybe, I, maybe a lesser figure has to bow to a greater figure, but basically, says the rules are there for people who have no opinion. But now he says something. Okay. Since the dispute between Beit Shammai and was very large, so that all the sages are subsumed within it, they said that anyone could choose to follow either Beit Shammai or Hillel consistently, as anyone had permission to include himself in the group of Beit Shammai or the group of Beit Hill. So what is the run, the run adding to us here? What he says is that um, there's a new principle for deciding halakha, I can decide halakha based on these mechanical principles of majority, greater, the right, the right to the chumrah, the rabban and the kula, 
or I can decide halacha on the basis of identity. I identify as a member of this yeshiva. I right in our right in our days it's probably it's less yeshiva than it might be. I identify as a follower of this Rosh yeshiva within that yeshiva. I identify as a follower of this stream of orthodoxy. I identify as a follower of that stream of orthodoxy. Um, so Rabbi says that really there comes a point when halacha is decided on the basis of identity. And then I think we put it all together and we say, you know what, when, when people are already at the stage where they decide halacha on the basis of identity, which means that it's not that they have no opinion. On every issue, they have an opinion, and the opinion they have is that their school is right because the assumptions have built up already to the point that they can't, they can't really evaluate which position is right. If I'm trained, you know, absolutely, and I think the only way to learn is brisk. Right, and um, and then somebody comes up to me, who right, who you know, who has a mode of learning that is radically different. I just say, look, that's just like I can't say that's equally right. I don't have the capacity to even imagine what it means to read text, to read text, to read text that way. So at that point, I have an opinion, but my opinion is not based on an independent evaluation of the issue. My opinion is based on a identity issue. So I think what the Gemara is saying is, uh, when it comes when it, you know, that when it comes to that point, the only way in which halakha can be decided is by God, because nobody can make decisions, and nobody took the Sanhedrin as binding. Because then, if the Sanhedrin is a deliberative body, and every, and every member of the Sanhedrin is making up their own minds, people are willing to accept their authority. But if we have what we call the politicization of the Sanhedrin where every member of Sanhedrin either comes to Hill or Beit Shammai, so that no one thinks that their decision matters, it just matters which side gets to a point more. And when you get issues, right, where, you know, where we would say, you know what, you know, the, if I think that we have a group of younger judges or I think we're likely to win the appointment of the Nasi, so I'm not going to allow anybody to join the Sanhedrin for a few years, right, um, because I won't, right, to make sure that I have a majority. So then the Sanhedrin no longer serves its unifying function. So what happens is that... Um, what I want to argue is that um, decisions become necessary when the right, when the law becomes politicized. Then we have to find some way. We have right either we have to give in and say the Torah is two Torahs, or if we want to still live as a single community, then we have to make decisions because this is going to metastasize and everybody's going to make right. Everybody's we're, going to, we're no longer going to see ourselves as a single community. Uh, that I think you know you know brief turn into prescript into prescriptiveness right. This is a grave danger, ironically, like even within modern orthodoxy. Modern orthodoxy you know, at this point is risking splintering in the way of the uh, Jewish, you know, Jewish rebellions against Rome in life of Brian, uh, right? Where, you know, we're even within the, you know, our tiny community, which is even you know, very small in orthodoxy, already getting to the point where we're incapable of having halakhic conversations with each other because people are building on their own premises and rejecting out of hand um, people who are coming from other, from other kinds of premises. Okay. So that's one model of just saying, right, talking about, right, before we say how we decide halakha, so we should recognize that very often halakha is decided by identity. And we should also be careful and say that is, sometimes it's an evil you have to recognize. And when it's an evil you have to recognize, um, let's say, for example, we think that Sephardi Ashkenazi differences in Tzach, you know, that divides, it, that divides Torah, divides the Jewish people, but we don't have a heavenly voice coming down, so we just have to live with it. But usually we see it as a danger when communities are splitting and the 
the virtue of having decisions made is that it forces us to be accountable to each other, and that enables the community to stay together, and that enables the Torah to stay together. And so one question of how decisions are made is, right, the first issue is whether decisions have to be made. And my argument is that often decisions don't have to be made except in the narrowest possible group, right? Um, and even then, I think that it's usually a good idea to let people, if possible, it's often a good idea to let people make their own halachic decisions and build a, a subjectively compelling um, halachic, halachic framework. But the dangers are that either that um, the community just can't handle it and you know, you're doing your own thing in Kashrus, but I won't eat with you, right? I won't eat in your house and now we, we have to fight about the right and wrong thing to do because if it, if it feels arbitrary to me, you could do anything. So then my life becomes meaningless. So fights are going to happen. Or I think the graver risk often is that uh, we lose any kind of idea of community cohesion. Okay, so let's assume we have to make decisions. What are the basis on which we make decisions? Um, so one idea that often comes up is what Ray Lam likes to call the, de the degeneration theory, or a Yeridata Dorot, that the generations become somehow less great as they descend from Sinai. So I just want to say up front, that is plainly not a coherent halachic rule. And the easiest way of framing it is that there's a principle, this is the only untranslated source in the sheet, called Halakha Kibasroi. Halakha Kibasroi means when two figures um, argue halachically, the later figure wins. So how can the later figure win if the later figure is always on a lower level than the, right, than, than the earlier figure, right? That can't possibly be. Um, so really, if you were to graph halachic authority, the graph halachic authority is what I would call a discontinuous function. Um, let's say, you know, that it starts off, let's say the first, let's say the Tanayim. The Tanayim start off as a seven on a scale of one to 10, and they go all the way up. And the last Tana, Rabida Anasi, has more authority than anybody else. And then the mission is written, and all of a sudden, halachic authority drops down to four the Amorim, and the Amorim climb all their way up to the, to the Chatimata Talmud, and the Chatimata Talmud, right, whoever, however the Talmud is completed, that has great authority, and then everything drops down to one for the Rishonim, right, and we're in the, what time we get to the Achronim, we're in the negative, right, where every era is seen as having more authority than the succeeding era, but within each era, often Halacha is seen as having ascending authority, that's at least true and, um, for the Tanaim and Amorim, right? If you look at the article, you'll see that it, it's a much more challenging. Even within the Amorim, it becomes very challenging. Um, I, you know, the details of that rule are very complicated, but it's, it's enough to falsify the idea of a linear decline in halachic authority. Um, and I think you know, a, a better description probably is that um, at a certain point, we say that all the reasonable interpretations of the past have been developed. So if you're coming up with an interpretation of the past, if you're making an argument based on a Tana and a reading of a Tana that no Amora um, represents, so one of two things, either you're wrong because you know, there were you know, a, thousand, a thousand years of brilliant people figuring this text and they never thought of what you said and they had a tradition. So it's really likely you're wrong or else the Jewish community as a whole totally rejected your position. So the interesting challenge to that, which is coming up now, is what happens if we have access to positions that they didn't have, right? What happens if we dig up a Geniza that goes back to the Tanitic period, which uncovers you know, versions of the Mishnah that were clearly not available to the Amoraim? And that's happening more and more in terms of, in terms of later figures. So that's a, a challenge, right? So the, the truth is the chronological thing, really, I think the best way to think of it is that there comes a point at which the barrier offering an original interpretation of a past text 
is extraordinarily high and there's a very strong bias against it. And basically the lines are, you know, that the, at the close of the Talmud, we don't really, uh, allow, we don't really expect um, original interpretations of Sanhedrin material. They have a lachig weight. And the question of whether the Shulchan Aruch plays the same role about Rishonim uh, is an open question. Some people think it, it does. And some people, and here I put myself among them, think that uh, because we have access to so much more information about the Rishonim than Yosef Karo did, that even if the Shulchan Aruch once played that kind of role, it really doesn't, um, it really doesn't anymore. Right, so that's a, um, so that, right, so that's a challenge with that, with, to the notion of chronological authority, which I think is a good general principle, but rarely a rule that, right, that sort of guides, you know, what the options halakhically are. But once you actually have halakhic options, it's not so common that that is a decisive factor. Okay, then there are, right, narrow rules. So I'm going to give you an example of a, uh, of a couple of narrow, narrow rules. So one of the, um, one of the rules, uh, let's say this as follows, right? So there's a Goran Erevin, we don't care what the issue is, where Rabbi Yaakov Baridi said uh, the name of Rabbi Yishua ben Levi, the halacha follows Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri in one of his disputes. Now Rabbi Zeira says to Rabbi Yaakov Baridi, aha, but did you hear, uh, did you hear this explicitly from Yishua ben Levi, or did you just derive from some other thing he said, ah, that must mean that the halacha follows Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. And he said, I heard it explicitly. Okay, so now the Gemara wants to say, um, well, what, why would he have needed to say it explicitly if there was a rule he could have derived it from? And the rule he could have derived it from is that when there's a dispute about an issue regarding an Erev, which doesn't matter which kind of Erev for our purposes right now, Halakha follows the lenient position. Halakha always follows the lenient position. Okay, so now the Gemara says, why do we need both statements? Well, if he just said Halakha follows Rabbi Yochan ben Nuri, I would have thought that meant that you follow, it follows an even his lenient restrict. Now we know that the only reason it follows him is because he's lenient. And if he, his position has non-lenient results, maybe we don't follow him. And if he just said the halakha follows lenient disputant, I would have thought that applies only to disputes among individuals. But here we discover that the rule that halakha follows lenient position overrides the rule about yachid v'rabim halakha kirabim. Okay, so that's a fascinating claim, that yachid v'rabim halakha kirabim, not when it comes to Erevin. When it comes to Erevin, the lenient position always, uh, always wins. Um, but the problem, of course, is that um, does that mean that if we're in the base medrash and we're power hungry, so we want the halakha to find us, so you know how to win halakhic disputes, just come up with the more lenient position. And if I want to be the figure who we possibly like, I'll just take your leniency and take you one position further. So arguments are always silly. We're always in the position of like that theoretical notion of Beit Shammai, who know they're always going to lose, right? You're always, anyone who takes a machmir position is always the Washington generals. So the answer, of course, is that's not the case. Well, the case is, right, when you're arguing, the people in the disputes don't know about this rule, don't follow this rule, right? When they're, right, the people in the dispute are arguing for the truth. It's the people who have no opinion, who, right, who are saying, look, I can't tell who's true. Well, if you can't tell who's true, then you should, right, you should follow the mechanical rule, but only because you have no, you have no position. If you have a position, right, then you'll see that people come up with, uh, creative ways, even if there is such a rule, to say that people who don't, right, people who don't have opinions should still, right, should still not be bound by the rules. So Shmuel says, follows they say, what? But Shmuel says, follows the lenient dispute, re- dispute regarding mourning, and Arvida Bimbatera is lenient, right, is, is strict regarding mourning. So the answer is, yeah, mourning and Kriya, tearing from mourning, those are different categories. Right, so if you don't, you know, so 
if you right, if you have an opinion, the odds are that you won't take the um, you won't take the rule as completely as completely dispositive. Okay, let's get to our um, our last source. So, Akavya um, Mehalel testifies about four things. Uh, so the rabbi said to him, Akavya, just recant those four things that you claim are the law, and you can become the Avbetin. And he said, what? For political purposes, I should give up the truth? Not, not for a moment. I will stick to my positions, even though his positions are complete minority positions, and they can't make him Avbetin, because you can't have an Avbetin who won't follow the majority rule. So let's watch what happened, right? Is um, right. So now, the um, right the Gemara says they actually excommunicated him, and he died excommunicate, and the Beit Din stoned his coffin because they thought you couldn't have a rabbi that great um, doing things against the right. It's, uh, the irony is that at a certain point, your greatness becomes a constraint. If he were a minor figure, no one would have cared that he had idiosyncratic positions. But because he's a major figure, right? They say you have to give in, and you have your choices are you can be in charge or you can be. Excommunicated, you can't be right. You can't be in the middle. Bermuda says no. They lived with it also. You know what? A caveat, a caveat, right, They lived with the caveat's um, dispute, and they were pluralistic about it. And then we have to have a second uh, right, level dispute about whether a caveat held his positions only theoretically, or even, um, or even, um, even in practice. And then we have to talk about what the rules of Zakain Mamre, which are not my, not my issue right now. Okay, but a caveat really, really holds these positions. And then he says, at the time of his death, he says to his son, my son, I want you to recant the four things, my 40 disyncratic positions. So his son says to him, hang on a sec. If you think they're true, why don't you want me to hold them? Right? Why, and you, and if, you, right, if you think you, that you don't have to hold them, why didn't you just give them up and become avvetin? So what Kavya says to him, I heard, right, when I heard this, it was a tradition from the majority. Or at least from, it was a viable halachic position. So I'm entitled mechanically to say that by the rules of halacha, I'm entitled to hold my position. And, you know, and the, the fact that the circumstances change don't change me. Because the truth is I have an opinion. And my opinion, is, my opinion was, was grounded in procedurally reasonable terms, so we're okay. But you, my son, he says, you don't have a basis for having your own opinion. All you're saying is you want to be identified with me. And now Akavi has a choice. He can say, you know what, my son, I endorse identity halachic politics. You identify as my son, you go, you go your way. Or he can say, look, you know what, I'm a minority. And if I and to tell you that you should identify with me and ignore the normal right, the, the mechanical rules because you have a halachic identity, well, you know, I think that's a very right, I think that's a very bad idea. That will just split the Jewish community, and it will um, and it will cause you to have fights and not have any kind of not have, not have any kind of role uh, in the position. He then tells you, "Look, I'm not going to use any influence for you, but I'm going to give you a fair shot." Right? That's his argument. I'm going to give you a fair shot. You're not going to be bound by your identification with me. You can just identify with the rest of the community, and that appears to be what his son does. Okay. So here's what I want to um, try and bring out. And again, I apologize if this was somewhat more meandering than, uh, than usual. It seems to me that if we want to understand how halakha is decided, there are really uh, two different ways in which halakha is decided. Um, really three kinds of issues. One is that you can decide not to decide. And that's a valid option we should think about more, more and more often. That sometimes it's okay for halakha not to be decided. All you have, the only decision you have to make is, 
is this a reasonable position or not? And if it's a reasonable position, we should endorse as many, you know, let 100 flowers bloom, so to speak, right? We can have as many reasonable positions as we want. Then let's say, suppose we decide it's the kind of issue that we can't, um, that we can't allow to be, uh, right, pluralism to exist because it threatens the community in some way or the other, or it's just impractical. So then you have two ways of making decisions. One way of making a decision is to say that, or three ways. One way of making a decision is to say that, okay, I will, there's, there are groups that I think are advance my ideology um, that, you know, that are the group I went to school with. So I'm going to decide halakha in accordance with my identity as a, you know, as a, as a REIT student, as a modern Orthodox or centrist Orthodox person, as a student of Rabbi so-and-so and so-and-so, as a New Yorker, as an Ashkenazi, right, as a, as a, Dati, as a, you know, as a, um, Dati Lumi person, right? So you can make decisions by identity. We should recognize how many of our decisions are really made that way. Then you can say, you know what? I don't want to make a decision based on identity because that splits the, because that seems to me to be counterproductive. And either I feel inadequate or I simply don't have a basis for deciding among the opinions. And then there's a whole set of mechanical rules that you can follow halakhically. But the mechanical rules mostly only apply if you don't have a position. Now, the really important issue is what entitles you to have a position, what kind of position you can have. So one argument is that the only kind of position you can have is a textual position. All right, so I can decide halakha based on what I think is the most plausible read of the past. And again, that's, you know, that's pretty iterative because what level of text I think I'm allowed to interpret, right? You know, how far back I can go, that'll, that will itself will be bound by procedural rules. And another thing is to say, no, you know what? There are issues where I don't have a textual basis, but I have a moral basis. I have a philosophic basis, right? That often people will take positions like that on issues of gender, let's say. So, you know, you know that, okay, I understand that there is a boundary, right? These positions are plausible. These positions are implausible. These positions fit within the consensus of what has seemed to be reasonably a reasonable procedural um, frameworks, this does not. But then once I've hit that threshold, um, I'm not going to make the decision mechanically, even though I don't have a basis for textual decision. I'm going to make the decision because I have a position that it's really important to preserve the traditional role of women. I have a position that it's really important to create massive options for women, right? So those are, right, that's the third way of making decisions, right? So I want to set that out, right? That really the fundamental ways of deciding halakha are identity, which we should pay attention to more. Um, Mechanics, which is you know the whole massive set of kolehora, and then substance, which is either because I believe this is the proper textual reading, which requires you know a great deal of skill, uh, or I believe this is the proper outcome morally, and it right and it reaches a threshold of plausibility, and there there's a great deal of discussion necessary as to um, what entitles one to reach idiosyncratic positions on that issue, or maybe that has to be done to some extent in congruence with identity. Okay, that's the end of my presentation. I'm sorry I didn't stop for questions. Now is a great time to ask questions before we're done. Hi, Rabbi Klaus. Hi. Um, so I'm curious about the, the, the fact that we have, that you, you side with Beit Shammai or Beit Hillel. Do we know of, like, do we have opinions that are from that generation other than from Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel? It seems like like you really did have to be in the group, and I'm not sure. Like, do we have other people offering 
like Toscaning at the time is that preserved? Right. So that's a great question, but there's a there's a circularity involved in it because it assumes that you know what period the Shamanbit Hill are. Um, right. We don't really know. Right. You know, we don't really know. Right. We know when Shama and Hillel lived, but Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are obviously not the same people as Shammai and Hillel. We don't really know how long. Right. Precisely because. Uh, right, because they're they're anonymous, so there's no real way of knowing when they lived. What I can say is that there isn't really a period in the time when they could live when we don't have named figures functioning. So it's more likely that people functioned to some extent as members of the school of Beit and Beit Hillel, and there might be lots of people who, you know, who, who were fundamentally, you know, historically trivial. So they have no, you know, so we don't know their names, right? You know, let's say, you know, if we were to say that there are you know, that there are three major yeshiva in North America, whatever you want to call it, right? You know, so there are the Russia yeshiva, right? You know, who, whose names, who sometimes cross party lines and sometimes have positions that are not actually just party line positions. So they are, they survive, but most of them would just, you know, go down as the YU guys, the Chavitz Chaim guys, the Lakewood guys, the Nerysrael guys, right? You know, they're, they're just the people who held the position of their yeshivas. I think it's more likely that the, um, that Beit Shammai Hill is reflects, you know, what happened when decisions were made by school, but that there were also, you know, people who lived during that time who had idiosyncratic positions. But just because they had idiosyncratic positions about some things didn't mean that on the whole, their default setting was identity as opposed to um, as opposed to idiosyncratic. Well, that's a great question. Look it up historically, and you'll see how controversial, how problematic the terms Beit Shammai Hill are. Yes. Um, okay, are there other questions? Uh, if there are not, um, then as always, people are welcome to send questions to uh, Modern Torah Leadership at Gmail. Um, hopefully the, um, I hope I remember to start the recording. Uh, so hopefully the recording of this and all the others are, um, will be available. Um, I'll put the links on Facebook, but now there is a podcast that you can look up on Anchor and on Spotify. Um, as well as a YouTube channel for the videos. Uh, and I hope that you'll come back and uh, join us uh, tomorrow morning at nine. We're going to do um, the, the first of, of a series of two on halakha and emerging technologies. So we're going to talk about CRISPR. When we talked about CRISPR in the 2019 SBM. We thought that was the, the hot issue, but now I'm just doing it really as a, as the safe space so we can talk about uh, Zoom uh, as the conclusion of the year on Thursday, because Zoom is obviously the issue where uh, which which is cutting edge nowadays and tomorrow night uh, tomorrow night in this year we'll do uh, who decides halacha um, which is obviously a very different question than how okay thank you very much thank you, thank you Rabbi Clapper. you're welcome uh, let's uh, okay and